This is the Mahabharata Podcast, Episode 8, Princes in Training. Before I get started with the story, I'd like to pause to spend a few minutes discussing the problems and nature of the documents that are known collectively as the Mahabharata. Unlike the Vedas, which have been preserved by memorization and passed on from generation to generation orally, the Mahabharata has come down to us through the ages as a book. One of the things about books in India is that, due to the hot and humid climate, they do not survive long. Thus, the very oldest existing manuscripts of the Mahabharata only go back to the 16th century. Many of the important versions are indeed much newer. Another important aspect of ancient Indian books is that they were written on loose sheets or leaves and then bound using string or metal hoops. This means that the manuscripts were very prone to having their binding broken, either intentionally to insert new pages, or by accident, resulting in the loss of pages and even possibly the scrambling of their order. Thus, for the Mahabharata to survive these thousands of years, it had to be constantly copied. The result is, like genetic mutations in a family tree, if you were to bring the various manuscripts together, you would find many differences, and also familial resemblances among groups of manuscripts, especially when grouped by certain regions and scripts. Some of the differences between the various manuscripts are quite important to our understanding of the characters and the story. Thus, when I have said, the book does not explain what authority Santanu had to grant this boon to Bhishma, I can't be completely sure that I'm right about this. There might be a version out there that spells this out perfectly, but then that explanation might be spurious. The same goes for the repetition and discrepancies. It is very unclear how these got into the story. Were they written in from the beginning, or did they creep in over time? To truly speak authoritatively about what is and is not in the Mahabharata, I would need to be familiar with many, many different versions of the story. Fortunately for us, much of this work has been done already. A massive project was completed in the last century that brought all of the ancient manuscripts together and compared them side by side. This team of scholars identified families of manuscripts, compared the points of differentiation, and then combined it to create a critical edition of the Mahabharata. A second project was then started at the University of Chicago in the 1960s to translate this official edition into English. It is this English translation by J.A.B. Van Buitenen that I am mostly depending on for my research. Therefore, I can at least speak with authority about this critical edition of the Mahabharata, at least for now. The problem is, Van Buitenen died in the 1980s, leaving his translation unfinished. Thus, I only have this as a resource up to about the first third of the book. After that, I'm on my own. Once I am set adrift without this translation, I will only have a much older translation to depend on, one which was based on only a single version from North India and translated by Kesari Mohan Ganguli during the Victorian era. For instance, some of you may be wondering why I never mentioned the backstory about Vyasa sitting with Ganesha as his scribe composing the Mahabharata. Well, the reason is, it isn't in the critical edition. I do promise that I will cross-reference the sticky points with Ganguly's edition just to be sure I'm not missing anything obvious. But I must confess that the language is difficult enough, and having to translate from Victorian English will be a challenge in itself. At least we're moving through the story much faster than the translators, so there's no danger of me dying of old age before I finish. Perhaps in future episodes, I'll review some of the other interpretations of the Mahabharata in Western, Indian, and Indonesian culture. But for now, let's get back to the story. 
We left off with the birth of the good guys, the five sons of Pandu called the Pandavas, and the bad guys, who were the 100 sons of blind king Dhritarashtra called the Karavas. Before they were born, Pandu had resigned the kingship, leaving the crown to his older brother, who had originally been disqualified due to his blindness. To complicate things further, Dhritarashtra's wife conceived her son first, but was pregnant for two years, so Pandu's eldest son, Yudhishthira, was born first, even though he was conceived later. To make matters even worse, Pandu died while his five sons were very young, leaving them orphans in the care of their uncle, the king. Clearly, this was all a perfect recipe for disaster when it came to recognizing the legitimate heir to the throne. The eldest Pandava, Yudhishthira, was unanimously considered the heir to the throne, recognized even by his uncle, King Dhritarashtra. But the Pandavas were orphans, and King Dhritarashtra had every reason to be resentful over the original decision to bypass him for the throne and having to wait for his younger brother to give it up before he himself could become king. Clearly, it would take an incredibly upright and virtuous monarch to swallow his resentments, put aside the interests of his own children, and hand over the crown to a helpless orphan. It would remain to be seen whether Dhritarashtra was up for the challenge, but I bet you can guess. Following the funeral ceremonies for the dead Pandu, Vyasa visited with Satyavati and warned her that there could only be a bad outcome for this situation. Satyavati thought on this and then decided to leave for the forest as an ascetic. She took with her her two daughter-in-laws, Ambika and Ambalika. We only hear that they lived an austere life of renunciation until eventually passing on to the next world. As for the children, all the princes, Pandavas and Kauravas, lived together, studied together, and played together. Yudhishthira's second brother, Bhima, was already an incredibly strong child. Remember that Bhima was precisely the same age as his cousin, Duryodhana, and so he played with the 100 cousins as an equal. He was, however, vastly stronger than all the other boys, and he bullied them relentlessly. He would knock their heads together, grab ten of them at once and hold them under water until they nearly drowned, and drag them by the feet through the dust. We are reminded that Bhima did these things not out of malice, but because he was just being a kid. Duryodhana, however, was not without malice, and he greatly resented Bhima's superiority at sports and his bullying at play. He began to scheme up ways he could disable Bhima, thinking that if he could only get Bhima out of the way, that he could easily overpower the remaining Pandava brothers. Duryodhana tried various methods of disabling Bhima. For instance, he tied him up and threw him into the river to drown. But Bhima was able to easily break his bonds and walk out. Duryodhana then set cobras on Bhima, and he was bitten repeatedly in his sleep. But he was so tough that the serpent's teeth could not pierce his skin. Bhima then killed all the cobras with his fists. Finally, Duryodhana, with the advice of his uncle Shakuni, who was Gandhari's brother, got hold of some poison and poisoned Bhima's food. Again, Bhima was so robust that the poison did not affect him. The Pandavas were aware of these attempts against them by their cousin, and so was their uncle Vidur. But none of them felt secure enough to make an open confrontation with Duryodhana, his father the king, and Duryodhana's uncle Shakuni, who was the king of Gandhara. And so, the orphan Pandavas simply tolerated these attacks. The attempt at poisoning could not be considered just a childish antic. It had taken a good deal of organization and had the feel of an international conspiracy. Thus, the king decided that it was time these boys were placed under the discipline of a guru. Two gurus were in fact found for these boys, both of whom were Brahmins, 
and both had oddly similar origins. The first teacher, named Kripa or Kripacharya, had been found as an orphan in the forest by Santanu. Later, he was to discover that his father was a powerful Brahmin named Gautam. Gautam had pursued the art of weapons to such an extent that the gods were made nervous. They sent down an apsara to seduce him and sap his strength. And so, the nymph appeared before Gautam emerging from her bath. The warrior was stunned by her beauty, dropped his weapons, but remained perfectly still. The only effect her beauty had on him was to cause a spasm, and his sperm fell on the ground. His potency was so great that the drops of sperm germinated into two children, a boy and a girl, without the intervention of a mother. The boy was Kripa, and he was trained in all the military arts by his father. Kripa was to teach both the Pandavas and the Kauravas to master the art of archery. The second guru was actually discovered by the boys themselves while out playing. They were playing some sort of ball game when the ball fell into a well. The boys all looked down and could not figure out a way to get the ball out. At just that moment, Drona was passing by. He laughed at the boys' inability to solve the problem and made a demonstration for them. He put some of the magical power of his bow into some reeds and then threw one of the reeds into the well at the ball. The reed hit the ball squarely and pierced it. Drona then threw down a second reed, which struck right into the end of the first one. He then threw down a third reed, which attached itself to the second, and was able to pull the ball out of the well. The boys were amazed at his ability, and they informed Bhishma of this Brahmin's talent. Bhishma then questioned Drona, who gave him his backstory. Dronacharya is sometimes difficult to distinguish from Kripa because both are Brahmins that are skilled at weapons, both are considered gurus to the princes, and they both were born only of a father. In Drona's case, his father was named Bharadvaja. He too was a master of the Vedas and of weapons, and he too was tempted by an apsara. It seems the gods are not comfortable with Brahmins that are warriors. In the case of Bharadvaja, as he watches Apsara alight from heaven, her skirt was blown away, and Paravaja's seed fell into a trough. It was in this trough that Drona was conceived without a mother. Drona was put under the care of a guru who taught him the art of war. He had a fellow student named Drupada, who was the crown prince of the kingdom of Panchala. As children, they were close friends, and Drupada would dream of the time he was king and told Drona that when he became king, Drona should come to him, and they would enjoy the riches of the kingdom together as friends. Drona took this promise seriously, and later, when Drupada ascended the throne, Drona went to Panchala to congratulate him, and expected a generous welcome. When he arrived, however, Drupada scorned him, saying Drona was a nobody, and not his equal, and thus could not possibly be considered his friend. Badly stung by the king of Panchala's scorn, Drona departed for Hastinapur. Recognizing Drona's talent with weaponry and warcraft, Bhishma placed him in charge of the young prince's training. Drona badly wanted revenge for Drupada's rejection, so he asked his students to promise him that they would help him in seeking his revenge. The Kaurava princes were reticent, but Arjun, not even knowing what he was committing himself to, readily promised to help his teacher. This was the beginning of Arjuna's close relationship with his teacher. This story about Drona's feud with the king of Panchala and his occupation as the crew's teacher could be interpreted in a different way. It is interesting that the kingdom of Panchala was the Kuru's direct neighbor downstream of the Ganges. When we look back at the genealogies, we hear that Panchala once defeated the Bharata dynasty and drove them off their lands. 
Remember, it was King Kuru who recovered the kingdom for the Bharata dynasty from the Panchala king. In addition, we don't see any attempts at creating alliances by marriage between the Kurus and the Panchalas. Finally, when we look at Pandu's list of conquests east of Hastinapur, Panchala is definitely not on the list. So, Panchala is neither an ally nor a client, but they are a close neighbor. I think it gives us reason to believe that Panchala was a serious rival to the Kurus in international politics. Therefore, when a skilled warrior, Drona, with a grudge against the king of Panchala, showed up at their doorstep, the Kurus were quick to offer him hospitality. Drona may be a useful surrogate in any future attack on Panchala. This indeed happens later in the story. The story of the prince's training under Dronacharya is made up of a few short vignettes. The first of these involved Arjun, who was without question the teacher's pet. Drona gave orders that Arjun not be allowed to eat in the dark. Then, one evening, while eating, Arjun's candle blew out. Arjun suddenly realized that even though he could not see his hand, nor his mouth, he could still find the food and bring it to his mouth. He had an epiphany. He went out in the dark and began target practice. He realized that just as your hand can find your mouth in the dark, the same principle could be applied to any target. Thus, Arjuna was able to hit any target, even in the dark or with his eyes closed. Drona was delighted with Arjun's proficiency and told him he would surely be the world's greatest archer. The second vignette involved a son of the chief of the Nishadas. The Nishada boy named Eklavya came to Drona to study archery. The Nishadas must have been a sort of barbarian tribe because Drona refused to train the boy. Eklavya withdrew into the forest and there made a clay statue that had the likeness of Drona. This he worshipped as his guru and spent all his time practicing at archery. His devotion to his guru was so great that he actually became a magnificent archer. Later, the Kuru princes went out hunting, and the retainers brought a dog along. The dog drifted off and encountered Eklavia in the forest, practicing with his bow. Smelling the dirty Nishada, caked in mud and stinking, the dog started barking and barking at him. Eklavia responded with a fistful of arrows, which all flew into the dog's mouth and plugged it up. The dog went running back to the Pandavas, who were thoroughly impressed. They went looking for the archer who did this, and came across Eklavia the Nishada. Eklavia told them that he too was Drona's pupil. The Pandavas recalled how Drona had turned the boy down, and so they went to their teacher and reported what they saw. Arjun went to Drona when they were alone and reminded him, Remember when you said that I would be the best archer? How is it that you have another pupil, that Nishada, who excels me and everyone in archery? Drona thought on this, and then took Arjun to find Eklavia in the forest. When they came across the boy, he was dressed in tatters and caked in mud and ceaselessly practicing with his bow. When Eklavia saw Drona, he immediately stopped, touched Drona's feet, and paid him due respects as a teacher. Drona said to him, If I am your teacher, then you owe me my fee. Eklavia said, What can I offer you? Just command me and I shall pay it. Drona answered, Then my fee is your right thumb. Without hesitation, the boy took out a knife and cut off his thumb and offered it to his guru. Now, the Asian method for notching an arrow is to hold the bowstring with your thumb. So, without a thumb, the boy could only use his fingers, and this drastically slowed his ability to fire arrows quickly. After that, Arjun, that little kiss-up, was happy 
content that no one would be a better archer than he. Out of all the Kuru princes, the five Pandavas were the best at weapons. Yudhishthira was the master of the chariot, Bhima was the greatest with the club or mace, and the twins Nakula and Sahadev were skilled at swordplay. The best of the Pandavas by far was Arjun, who excelled at all weapons. This left the Kaurava princes, led by Duryodhana, to stew in their jealousy. When all their studies were completed, Drona assembled the boys to test their skills. He had an artificial bird made and attached it to the top of a high tree where it was barely visible. He then called on Yudhishthira, who was the eldest, and asked him to notch an arrow and aim at the bird. He asked Yudhishthira what he saw. Yudhishthira replied that he saw the target on the tree, as well as his teacher and his brothers. Drona said, then be off. He then called on Duryodhana and asked him the same question. Duryodhana answered in the same way and was also dismissed. Drona then tested each of the boys in turn until lastly he got to Arjun. Arjun notched his arrow on the bow and took aim. Drona asked him, now what do you see boy? Arjun said, I see the target. Drona asked, do you see the bird, the tree, do you see me? Arjun said, I see the bird, but I don't see the tree, nor you. Drona then asked, if you see the bird, then describe it. Arjun replied, I see its head, but not the body. Drona was delighted, saying, now shoot. Without hesitation, Arjun fired and pierced the bird in the eye, making it fall to the ground. At that, Drona felt confident that he would get his revenge. A few days later, while bathing in the Ganges, a crocodile swam up and grabbed Drona by the leg. Even though Drona was perfectly capable of saving himself, he called on his students to rescue him. While the other boys were still figuring out what was happening, Arjun had already fired a salvo of arrows into the crocodile, forcing the wounded beast to let go of Drona and sink under the waves. Drona was extremely proud of his top student. He presented to Arjun a weapon called the Brahma Head, and instructed him on how to use it, saying that it could only be used against supernatural enemies because if used on normal humans, it would destroy the world. That ends Book 7 of the Mahabharata, called The Origins. The Kuru princes are ready for graduation day, and Duryodhana is as jealous as ever. Drona has big plans for revenge against his former friend Drupada, the king of Panchala. In the next episode, we'll start into Book 8, called The Fire in the Lacquer House. We'll discover that there aren't just five Pandavas after all. There's a mysterious sixth brother who will make his appearance for the first time. Thanks for listening.